Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner it's the also sport podcast we review ricardo's redemption in monaco and ask if it was really as easy as it looked Daniel Ricciardo's victory in the Monaco Grand Prix represented redemption two years after he lost certain victory to a Red Bull pit stop blunder. But it wasn't easy. He lost the MG UK relatively early in the race and had to get to the end with Ferrari Sebastian Vettel breathing down his neck with 161 brake horsepower missing. Very good drive. We'll get on to how good it was later. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me in our in our palatial apartment, a few a few coves round from Monaco in the direction of Nice. First is uh, Scott Mitchell. Now, Scott, you've been to Monaco before, but to cover Formula E, and this is the first time you've seen Formula One cars in action around the tight streets. Now, I've been talking up how impressive it is to be able to watch trackside here. What did you make of it? Well, I'm, I was very excited to actually come here and watch real cars making real noises that are actually really difficult to drive, making the drivers work, etc., etc., uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I've generally been of the view that the noise, that sort of thing, doesn't really sort of have a big impact on me watching trackside. I prefer to actually just see a, a driver having to work hard. That's why I like watching Formula E trackside for so long. I've made it really clear how difficult those cars are to drive. But I went into the tunnel 
in FP2 and I was just, I was absolutely blown away by it to be honest. I, I, if you stand close to the track that does happen. Yeah, exactly. There's a point where the car's exit. Very yeah. very good, very good. Um I it was just a, it was just an overall experience that was much much cooler than I anticipated. I got I walked around the majority of the track with uh, the next guest I believe you're about to introduce on the on the podcast and just being able to see them up close it's just it's definitely the coolest thing I've done trackside at a Grand Prix so far. It is spectacular and it really lets you appreciate just how good these drivers really are. And the other guest you mentioned is Stuart Codling. Now, you're a regular at Monaco and you're something of an aficionado of the, the heritage of this place. I am indeed. I'm actually writing a book called The Life Monaco for my publisher's motor books, which will be coming out later this year. You got that plug in early, didn't you, Connor? Do I sense a plug? That's appalling. A plug? By the time everyone's listened to this, by the time it actually comes out, they'll have forgotten about it. So uh, get it on your Christmas list soon, kids. But yeah, uh, Monaco, uh, a place I I love to come to visit. I wouldn't want to live there. Uh, you might want the paycheck that justifies living there. That would be quite nice, wouldn't it? But uh, you don't get yeah. we don't get paid enough for these podcasts. Do no. you, wait, do you not get a paycheck? I, mean, I do. Like that, that's what I get. I, I live in Monaco, don't you? Well, I'm originally from a tax haven, of course. Oh I'm yeah, from, Guernsey. I'm from Guernsey, yeah. So, uh, so Monaco. Well, I was going to say it's very familiar, but it's not. Other than the sea being there, it's G- uh, Guernsey, a cloudy place for shady people. It doesn't quite work, does it? <laughs> Where did you get that slogan from? But yes, uh, the heritage does ooze out in Monaco. There's a lot of things I dislike about Monaco and what it represents, but there's a lot I like about it as well from a from a Grand Prix status. It is a, a fantastic place, even though the race isn't necessarily the most dramatic, which we're going to get onto now. Daniel Ricciardo was on pole, led from start to finish. Now, how good do we think his drive actually was? Firstly, to get himself up front. And secondly, to deal with the power loss problem, which happened around about lap 28, maybe slightly earlier on the previous lap, when he lost the MG UK power. I suppose the elephant in the room we have to address is the other Red Bull driver, Max Verstappen, who's paid more than uh, Daniel Ricciardo. And yet, one of them started from the front, one of them started from the back, and it wasn't the best paid one who started from the front. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo really sewed this race up by putting that car on pole position while his uh, teammate waited for his car to get fixed after he'd put it in the wall. The the really impressive thing for for Ricardo, apart from managing the problem you mentioned at the beginning, losing the MG UK, was just the the total dominance of of the week. Tops every practice session, every qualifying segment. And I know you've done a bit of statistical research on this, Ed. So it's actually a bit more common than we first thought. It's not common in the context of this season. It it just represented a guy who who came here with his first opportunity to be in that sort of position because Red Bull's power deficit on the Renault engine side is is mitigated by the layout of Monaco and and Ricardo's just been top dog from the very beginning and and I believe that that Ricardo's edge that he's had on Verstappen triggered the the mistake that in FP3 that ultimately ruined Max's weekend. I think he was just desperately trying to get on top of of Ricardo and, and, and be number one going into qualifying and it, and it backfired. Well, coming back to that point about topping all sessions, that's only the fourth time it's happened in the 21st century. So, you know, that, that's a rare achievement. It's only happened at Monaco before once, which was a certain Michael Schumacher in 1994. And of course, Michael Schumacher in 1994 in the race after Monaco that year, because Monaco and Spain were an unusual way around, if, uh, if everybody remembers that season. That was where Michael Schumacher was stuck in fifth gear, still finished second in the Grand Prix. And that was what Christian Horner, Red Bull team principal, compared Ricardo's drive to. Now, I guess we should get into what the problems Ricardo actually had were. It wasn't just a power loss, was it, Scott? 
No, so the, the MG UK has a, has a knock-on effect. It's an integral part of the energy recovery system. It's 120 kilowatts of power, which is 160.9 brake horsepower, I believe. You rounded up to 161. It's a very uh, smug gesture. Shocking. No, we, we, we were, I was winding him up at the, uh, earlier when we were writing a story about this that I, I prefer to make it 160 because it's a nice round number. Um, so you do have the power loss. There's a sort of, I think there's a global element as well within the whole power unit that the MGUK has a knock-on effect with how it works with the other ERS components. But the, the, the big thing that Ricardo had to manage in the race was that the MGUK harvests energy from, from under braking and you lose that impact that it has uh, on the rear axle under braking, which means it puts more stress on the brakes themselves, which means temperatures skyrocket. Christian Horner said after the race that it was actually very close to just lighting up, literally a flame, and ending his race there and then. So Ricardo tweaked his driving style. He started lifting and coasting into corners to to ease the ease the temperature on the rear brakes he wound the the, the brake balance forward for six or seven uh, percent which he said was was basically about three times as much as you'd ever uh alter that during the race normally so and all the while he's having to manage tires there was lots of graining in the race he had Vettel got within DRS range and was generally only a second behind so he had this monumental problem that had we been on any other circuit probably would have been massively more costly but obviously track position is is king at monaco that gave him an opportunity that tiny tiny chance to salvage it in a situation that was otherwise unsalvageable but then there was all of these other elements that he needed to control and and somehow he did and everyone that spoke after the race even including ricardo said they don't know really know quite how he pulled it off but through all of these little tricks and, and adaptations and the general brilliance of the man he he achieved it you have to put yourself in the position of Ricardo to kind of appreciate this. You're leading the Monaco Grand Prix. Okay, the pace wasn't that hot. He was lapping in the 18s before that, which isn't a particularly quick pace. He was controlling the pace. But you suddenly find yourself short of power. So you're thinking, right, what's going on? You're communicating with a the team. There's all these things you're trying to deal with. What you have to change, going through fail modes to see if you can reset things. And then you start having to fiddle about with the brake bias all the time trying to adapt to a car that is now slower with a Ferrari right behind you. Now, I know it's Monaco and most other circuits, probably every other circuit, it wouldn't have been possible to stay ahead. But to deal with all that mental loading, with Vettel behind, seeing there's a problem and clearly smelling blood, he'd have thought, there's a, there's a shot here. That's really good. And just to get through those few laps in particular where you're adapting, obviously he wasn't able to... Well, he said he was only using six gears. Realistically, it only cost him one gear because he wasn't using eight, really. But even so... All of these things, you're in that rhythm, you're controlling it, you've got the pit stop done, you've basically won the race, and then suddenly a race you're annoyed still that you lost two years ago through no fault of your own, it's being jeopardised. And just to control it all and make it look so easy is far, far, far more difficult than than anyone can realise. You could tell by the sort of the timbre, as uh, musicians say, of his voice, because usually he's very relaxed when he's on the team radio. And just when the, the problem first came in and he reported it, there was just an edge of stress in there. Uh, and then that went away once he realised that he'd got it and he could manage it, and the confidence almost came flooding back. And you could you could just tell that by the tone of his voice. Coddles mentions the team radio there. There was a brilliant bit where Ricardo, when the problem first emerges... I don't think we quite heard it on the broadcast, but uh, Ricardo asks, is it the K? And he doesn't get a response. And then at the end of the race, the team comes over the radio and says, you were right with your guess, but we didn't want to say it. Because obviously, if it gets picked up by the world feed or it gets picked up on a channel that the 
that the other, the rivals can hear, then as you say, that position of smelling blood, you, you if you think that it's a terminal problem, maybe you you wait and sort of see what happens. We were talking during the race, weren't we, Ed, about you you can't really afford that because if it's a temporary problem, you need to, to strike now. But just you don't really want to give your rivals any opportunity, do you, to sort of go, right, okay, hit him now while he's trying to work out how to deal with it. Yeah, we should we should cover that off really in that all the radio broadcasts are open and every team listens to what they, what they can actually listen to all the radio that's sent. Now, you don't necessarily have one person sitting in mission control back home for each of your rivals' broadcasts because that would just create chaos. So there is, there is the percentage chance that uh, a team might not pick up on uh, a rival's communications because they're, they're two or three people they have monitoring a are listening to something else at the time but you still don't want to divulge that sort of information over an open frequency especially because as soon as you divulge the nature of the problem and your rival understands it they once they know the specific nature of the problem they can work out where you're going to be weak if they all they can see is dropping pace then they then all they can tell Vettel is he's got a problem if you know it's because he's going to be weak at the end of the straights or he can't deploy off of a corner whatever the problem is you just give that little specific bit of information and they know where to attack and also if you're Vettel not only not only might you have realized a few corners too late even if it's like three or four corners late that they realize there's a problem that's that helps Ricardo but also if you're Vettel you're sat there thinking well I'm not sure whether that's the beginning of a retirement or what, and he's got his championship main rival behind him, you know, I know Ricardo's not too far off from the championship, but it's, Vettel will have both of his eyes really on Hamilton, so he'd be thinking, well, I don't want to pull a dicey manoeuvre here or take a risk, because I'm ahead of my world championship rival, so just giving that little bit of uncertainty in that period where Ricardo's just sorting everything out is, is very impressive, and then once it had all stabilised and he'd worked out what he was doing and how to drive it to get to the end of the race that was when it got a little bit more easy for him and he could control the pace doubly so given everyone who was on the ultra softs which is the top four so Ricardo Vettel Hamilton and Raikkonen were all on the ultras Bottas in fifth was on the super softs for the second scene which were working better that kind of helped calm things down but just imagine that the, the cognitive loading needed you're trying to drive around Monaco even at slightly reduced pace but trying to calculate all of this notwithstanding the fact he'll also have had to push relatively harder than the others to achieve the same lap time. Well, Horner said after the race that one of the things that was particularly impressive with how Ricardo handled it was his ability to 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 be aware of the bigger picture. So he was asking how long Verstappen's tyres were lasting for. He, he was told that Hulkenberg had run long in the first stint. So he was asking, right, how long did those tyres last and which tyre went first? What do I need to protect? So... All the while, as you say, adapting around this problem, he's not doing anything that jeopardises the rest of his race. He He's aware that he's got a short-term problem, but he's also got a medium-term and a long-term element to consider to, to complete the race distance. And I didn't see a single mistake from him, a single misbreaking point, a lock-up, anything like that. I, it was absolutely perfect. And as I said, I think you should give him 11 out of 10 in your autosport driver ratings this week. Yeah, I, I explained maths works against that. Well, it would, wouldn't it? Uh, the other thing we should also cover off is that Ricardo had to, even though he had the problem, he had to drive at a certain pace to keep his tyres in the window. So we, we should also put a little nod to that, that he was able to drive quick enough to avoid the tyres dropping out the temperature window. And as one of our ex-colleagues would say, exasperate his problems. 
And also, if you let the tyres drop out of the window, not only do you lose grip, but also you'll accelerate the graining. The front left was a particular problem. All tyres were prone to a little bit of it, but the front left in, in particular. So, yeah, there's all these compound problems that can that can manifest themselves. And it's just impressive. And like you said at the start of this question, Covers, in comparison to what Verstappen did, and I think we should probably dig into Verstappen a little bit more now because he was the other guy with a car that could win the Monaco Grand Prix. He he threw away the chance at least of a Red Bull 1-2, maybe his own first Monaco Grand Prix victory. And this, remember, this crash in the second part of the swimming pool, the right-left coming coming out of the swimming pool, that was on his first flyer of his qualifying simulation run in P3. So there was nothing really at stake. Verstappen's made several mistakes this season, some more high-profile than others, some, you could argue, a bit more 50-50. And he's adamant that he doesn't need to change his approach. That's been his line all all year after mistakes big and small whatever incident one would argue that the number of mistakes he keeps consistently making and the magnitude of the consequences suggest that actually he does really need to change his approach and Christian Horner did say as much after the race that he would probably benefit from modifying his approach slightly there's a big difference between what Verstappen is doing in that Red Bull and what Ricardo is as Ricardo said after qualifying that car's so good in Monaco you don't need to overdrive it and Max was pushing pointlessly for an FP3 session he didn't need to top is it worth us comparing his approach with, say, Charles Leclerc here? Because Leclerc had a, a quite a big off in um, Q1, but only after he'd set a time good enough to go through to Q2. And he said afterwards, um, I, I was just, I, I knew that I'd set, uh, I'd, I'd kind of maxed out the car. I'd set a lap that was fast enough. And then I thought, okay, right, I'll go for it now, see see what else I can do. So in in a way, he had a much more scientific approach in that he'd, he'd banked the lap he needed, he'd got it in his pocket, and only then did he start trying to explore the limits. Whereas Verstappen was kind of throwing everything at the wall, literally, to see what stuck, even before there was anything really to achieve. The other person I would like to sort of point out as someone who who handled a stressful situation well over the weekend was Sergei Sirotkin, who in FP1, he hit the wall early. He, and it, it wasn't because he'd it wasn't because he'd overstepped the limit. It was basically, he admitted he was messing around with some settings on the, on the steering wheel coming onto the start-finish straight. And he let it drift a bit too wide, caught a bit of a slide and slapped the wall with the, with the right rear. But it, but it set him back and it was very early on and he's a, he's a Formula 1 rookie. So track track time is really, really important. And he said, basically, he had to reset. He was like, okay, it wasn't a performance-related thing. So I know that there is still a limit for me to go to, so I don't need to worry about that. But this has put pressure on me because I already, I've already hit the wall. I've already lost track time. But he managed to sort of compose himself within that, push where it was required. And he was actually, he threaded together a really, really good weekend, really good qualifying. And then Williams botched it for him in the race. But... It's just another example of a different driver who, with less experience of Verstappen of those circumstances, handling something difficult very well. And we we noticed, didn't we, after qualifying when Verstappen had his media session, he doesn't deal with negativity very well. And you need that ability to to honestly appraise yourself and go, okay, what do I need to change and how do I change it? And I just don't think at the moment he's got that. I think he needs to get a kick from someone at Red Bull to make that change. And also... Bear in mind, the mistake he made was very small. We've seen that mistake made before. Well, Verstappen made it before as well in 2016. But he could very, very easily have said, yeah, I was trying to get my iron for qualifying. I knew Ricardo was going to be a tough person to beat. I wanted to try and get the maximum out of it. I made a slight misjudgment. It's probably turning a little bit too early not to 
not factoring in the extra grip of the of the fresh rubber. And it would be easy just to explain it and say, well, it's that, 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 because it was a relatively small mistake. Okay, it came at a stupid moment, but the fact that he just doesn't seem entirely comfortable with doing that makes makes me wonder. And I think in Red Bull's position, I, they've tried to give him a kick. They've tried to explain to him, you know, he's had China. There should have been some recognition of what he needs to do. The same in Baku. The Spain era when he clipped the back of Stroll in the VSC conditions, I can kind of excuse, but still has to go down in the list of, uh, of asterisks against uh, against his performances. But it's kind of the, the build-up of these things. And ultimately, if you're Christian Horner or Helmet Marker or anyone, you can, you can say as much as you want to him, right, you've got to learn from this. Don't do that. Modify your approach. It's down to the driver to do it. As Horner keeps saying, you know, it, it's really down to him. And Verstappen is still... 20 and maybe he's struggling just to get himself into the right mindset and mode to do it because he's got to where he has done and he's a fantastically good driver by being aggressive by being attacking and so that's the way he knows and when you're struggling and you want to get things flowing you normally want to do your natural approach to things so I can understand why he's struggling maybe a little bit to, to get in the, the correct headspace to do it. I'm really interested to see how Red Bull reacts to this and tries to get him into that headspace because Red Bull have massively, massively backed Verstappen. It's, everyone is commenting on the fact that he's better paid than Ricardo. Red Bull have clearly identified Verstappen as the guy for the future. Marco sees him as you know, the big talent that he's identified, so they're throwing their weight behind him. And at the moment, within that team, they're backing the wrong horse because Ricardo is the guy who, who might leave at the end of the season. Personally, I don't think he will because I don't think he's got anywhere better to go to. But they've basically said, OK, Max is our guy. So if you're putting all your eggs in one basket, which is essentially what they've done, and then those eggs are basically falling through the bottom of the basket, that's it's just an unacceptable situation. The, the car is good. It's not Mercedes-Ferrari level overall as a package because of the Renault engine. But Max is costing them a lot of valuable Constructors' Championship points at the moment. And they need, they need to do something because at the moment, their really high-profile, high-value asset just is not delivering. That's actually a really good point because... The, as a sort of a consequence of that, and if we carry on Scott's um, egg and basket metaphor, if you are the person responsible for the basket and you've deposited all the eggs in it, then you don't really want to be seen to be the person allowing those eggs to either um, go stale or fall through the bottom of the basket. So you have the likes of Marco and Horner, who've staked a lot personally in terms of backing Verstappen, that now becomes problematic for them in terms of their standing within the company because they're just employees. Um, if, if Verstappen underperforms, if he becomes uh, someone who's tricky to manage and, and they're seen to have backed the wrong horse, the guy who actually signs the checks uh, starts to then think, actually, are these people really competent to be running my team? The thing that Max Verstappen's done that has really wound me up this weekend is he's responsible, I think, for, for the boring Grand Prix. Because, yes, Ricardo had the problem and Vettel wasn't able to attack him. But we should have had two Red Bulls at the front fighting one another. And it would have been been so, so interesting to see how that happened. Because we know that Ricardo versus Verstappen is an inc- incredibly tense battle, personal level and professional. So how Verstappen would have responded to his teammate limping would have been absolutely brilliant to watch. We should have seen an absolutely titanic battle for pole between the two. Instead... Much as Ricardo was absolutely mega, his qualifying lap was a joy to watch. How he handled the race was superb. We were deprived of that, and the race was the race was boring. I think for most of it, it was interesting in 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 ways strategically. But apart from Ricardo's tense problem, and then Charles Leclerc 
climbing up the back of Brendan Hartley late on because of a brake failure. Was there anything of note in that race? It was interesting rather than exciting, wasn't it? Yeah, and if you look at the queue behind Ricardo, you had Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, Kimi Räikkönen, Valtteri Bottas. They finished in the order they started in. We had a lot of Lewis Hamilton radio chat, concern about graining and talking about whether he needed to stop again, etc., which wouldn't have made sense because he was sacrificed two places of trap position, which wouldn't have been really relevant to do. But yeah, that was all all defined by qualifying. And it's absolutely true that eliminating Verstappen was a problem because then Red Bull would have had to made it, make a decision, which actually is very, very interesting from a contractual point of view because Ricardo could have kept Verstappen behind him. Let's assume they'd have qualified one two. We'll have to say Ricardo was probably favourite for pole because he had been had been so quick. But what happens? Verstappen will want to go ahead so he's not vulnerable and getting backed up into into Vettel. Then there's this whole contract dimension where Ricardo thinks, well, if you're going to order me to give up the Monaco Grand Prix why am I going to re-sign with you? And Especially so, after they cost him the win two years ago. Yeah, so exactly. So imagine what we'd be talking about after the race if, if that scenario ha- had arisen. Meanwhile, in Verstappen's case, he'll just be sat there thinking, well, that was my race. I should I should be sat here with a Monaco Grand Prix win. Verstappen's a brilliant driver. You know, it's not like Daniel Kvyat, who was struggling also to string together whole Grand Prix weekends. Yes, Verstappen is trying to now, but he has won Grand Prix. And this is, this is more a wobble for Verstappen that I think he probably will get out of but if he doesn't, he, there are going to be big trouble. But losing a race like this probably hurts even more than losing a race like China. So that's two Grand Prix Verstappen should have won this year that he hasn't, that his teammate has. And that, that I was going to say that can't fail to make an impression on him, but will it? Because I'd have probably said a similar thing after China, after Baku. I think the fact that Horner is now saying he will benefit from a modified approach, that's probably the most forceful we've heard Red Bull be about him. It's now moved from a he'll learn from this to a he has to learn from this. And as we've said before, they've they've staked a lot on him. They've given him a lot financially and everything in terms of confidence as well. So personally, they've invested a lot in him, a lot of time and money. He has no choice but, but to adapt. And a lot of people have said, how can he adapt? How can he reduce that risk of a shunt without killing what makes him so special as a talent, I think it is doable. We still see the likes of Hamilton and Vettel who have been crash happy at times in their own career as well. We shouldn't forget that. It is it is doable. And for the sake of F1's short-term future, Verstappen on form in a championship-winning car will be an absolute joy to watch in the coming seasons. He could be around for a do- another dozen years at least. But... So for the for the benefit of F1, for the benefit of Red Bull and Max himself, because he is a kid still, let's let's not forget that. I, I really really hope he 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 sorts his head out. Should we turn our attention a little bit further down the grid to elsewhere within the Red Bull Empire and Pierre Gasly's remarkable P7? You know the the sort of strategic contortions they had to go through to deliver him to what would have been a net two place uh, gain, but for. Fernando Alonso's breakdown that, that's pretty extraordinary in the context of a Grand Prix where it was so difficult to pass at oh god I've just ended a sentence with a preposition well there's a few ways of looking at Gasly's weekend he looks strong I should add that ultimately Gasly probably should have been ahead of those cars anyway because he did have the underlying pace to be best of the rest he qualified 10th Esteban Ocon actually was should not have been ahead of Gasly he shouldn't really have been ahead of science he shouldn't really have been ahead of Alonso on the grid but Ocon was the one who strung together 
his three best sectors when it mattered in Q3 and jumped up from what should have been the fifth row onto the onto the third row and he was rewarded with that great run to what I like to call class B victory. But yeah, I mean it's a good performance from Gasly. He had to he had to make those tyres last and it was it was touch and go. You know, that's that's a race. If you look at the gaps behind him as well, it's a race that could have been could have swung on just a very small amount of time. So the difference between zero and hero there. So I'd say that partly makes up for, for the qualifying disappointment, even if he did make life a bit harder for himself. I think Gasly and Toro also got a bit lucky. I think the same goes for Nico Hülkenberg and Max Verstappen as well, because there was a phase in the race where uh, they were they were running so long in the opening stint, just making making those tyres last way longer than anyone thought would be would be possible, um, which was an incredible achievement, and and they do deserve credit for doing that and keeping the pace up. But they were lucky that the tyres did last as long as they did and came back to them because their pace after even after. 25 30 laps was was super strong and, and arguably stronger than those who had pit for for ultra uh, for ultra soft and super soft tires and were going for a graining phase so so the guys that had stayed out had a benefit there but they had actually been caught back up by the guys who were behind them in the opening stint stopped put fresh tires on and caught back up so there was a, there was this phase where it looked like it had backfired spectacularly and they were going to plummet down the order and then they got a bit of a break because the others sort of went through that graining phase. Hartley in particular was struggling because he damaged his front wing on the on the first lap and, and Hartley was this sort of bottleneck of this midfield group that had stopped, put fresh tyres on and were coming back. And he went from being looking like a, a net P8, P9 to, to Gasly, Hülkenberg and Verstappen being able to stop and rejoin ahead just because he went through that graining phase he lost a load of pace and and Gasly was able to rebuild that that pit stop window so I, I think it was sort of there was an element of luck involved although what they had in their control they did execute very well I think for the benefit of the listeners we should describe the scene now which is Ed scrutinising his timing data very carefully yeah what are you and thinking Ed Scott doing a mental fist bump at the the fact that all that extra, all that research we were doing into the times this morning at about 8 o'clock when yeah, Ed God, was still not no, 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 about God, God bless the forex dividends. service <laughs> no no it's, it's all correct it's, it's interesting because you kind of get to a point where if you go a little bit long, you then have to go very long because you miss, you know, Van Dorn lost out a little bit because he went a little bit too long and then stopped. And there's a point where they just probably need to say, actually, we're just going to leave you out for for an age. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think this to me does, I just want to keep going back to Ocon and how, how well he drove. He was only kind of just at the front of that group in the end, but because he'd done what he needed to do in qualifying, he was there at the front of that group and he was insulated from all this and he was able to strategize in a way that meant he could react to those around him because for example he was trying to run as long as he could but there was a point where once Alonso had pitted he was in danger of being undercut by Alonso and then well I remember saying to you Scott right they've got to pit Ocon now otherwise he's going to lose the place and he did and he came out a second ahead of Alonso and that's what that kind of qualifying performance buys you the chance just to have a completely straightforward race and kind of pick your moments not straightforward because he did have a break by wire problem that he was managing at the end straightforward strategic yeah yeah he lost uh he lost break by wire for a couple of laps yeah. didn't he yeah. and it was a it was the epitome of a quietly excellent race and it was one that went barely noticed by the tv cameras you could only really follow the excellence of it if you were keeping an eye on the timing screens and the app and and the gps to see how well he was managing everything which you would imagine mercedes was doing oh yes and uh, I, I think Ed Straw will have been watching that for when he ponders whether to perform the mathematical impossibility of giving Esteban 11 out of 10. 
Well, Esteban Ocon did get 10 out of 10, which is the uh, the, the mathematical maximum. But yeah, it was a very good drive from Ocon. I'm pleased to see it because his season's been a bit up and down. He has had some very good drives, but he hasn't quite had that kind of metronomic form he had last season. And it's nice to see him get a really strong result, get that Class B victory, uh, as it were, because to, to be out front in that requires a very, very good performance. And generally, if you're best of the rest this year, You've driven very, very well in the race and often in qualifying too. So, uh, so yeah, all, all credit, uh, all credit for him. I think there were a lot of good drives from other highly rated young talent whose whose name is not Max Verstappen. Lance Stroll, yeah, Lance Stroll. <laughs> um, Ocon, Ocon did very well. Um, Gasly did very well. Uh, Leclerc was was driving very well as well until that front left disc failure that sent him up the back of Hartley. So, these guys very in experience obviously Ocon's got a little bit more in in F1 but I think there there's so much really really good young talent Monaco is such a difficult track to throw it all together it's really really good to see them all have a, a confidence boost in weekend Leclerc had a bit of a Heinz Harold Frentzen moment didn't he where he must have seen the uh the the brake disc explode out through the vent as he came out of the tunnel and he sort of knew that accident was coming because he got on what was left of his brakes super early and it, it must have been pretty pretty scary well he actually said after the race we we were asking like are you okay what you know it was it's quite spectacular and he said was it actually that bad we we're like have you not seen it no i've not watched it back he just sort of said yeah, watch your back. Watch your back and tell us if it's not that if it's not actually that big. <laughs> Admirable Sangfrad. Is there is there anyone else that we should highlight given that um we must shortly depart our wonderful digs here at Saint Jean Cap Ferrat, five minutes walk away from David Niven's old mansion on the Riviera so that we can await at the convenience of the striking French air traffic exactly. controllers. I, I certainly wouldn't want to keep French air traffic control waiting to keep us waiting. Uh Carlos Sainz in tenth place is worth a mention. Obviously he stopped quite early and went long and he was having all sorts of troubles remember him being passed let pass by Nico Hulkenberg well by the end of the race he was like best part part three quarters of a minute behind he had a he had a difficult time he did well to salvage he was not happy with that situation yeah but the trouble is there were drivers who were locked in to starting on hypersofts that was the difference between Hulkenberg and Sainz Hulkenberg locked up at turn 10 on what should on his best Q2 lap what should have got him through to Q3 and he started 11th and was able to start on the uh, on the other tyres rather than the hypersoft. So Sainz was kind of in a in a difficult situation. Yeah, in retrospect, he could have run longer, got the tyres back again as some others did, but he was kind of caught in that in that awkward situation. On behalf of everyone with fever, turn ten. Mm. Yeah, the chicane. <sighs> the reason I said turn ten is it was in my mind because that's what he said. I did have to go and look it up, actually, okay, to double-check. I assumed it was no, a chicane. Okay, fine. No. Disappointment. Yeah, fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. He was very, very cagey after that because uh, I'd, I'd looked at the the Pirelli data sheet that came out about what tyres were left, and I said to him, um, well, you know, you've got free tyre allocations. You could, um, you know, do something clever with the super, with the, uh, with, with the um, Ultra Soft. And uh, he had a little twinkle came into his eye and said, um, not the Super Soft then? Uh, just, just that. Sometimes he likes to sort of dangle a little carrot there to see if anyone's paying attention in the media session, and generally the answer to that is no, uh, given how few people actually ask questions in these open presses. I think one interesting footnote from the race is obviously the performance of the Supersoft surprised a few people, and I still am slightly surprised at how often the teams load up completely 
almost entirely on the softest tyre because you will learn a bit more about the harder tyre compounds. I mean, yes, you need a decent number of hypersofts, but I do think teams are putting themselves in a little bit of trouble just by not having a little bit more experience and understanding to anticipate. What we need is another 90-minute practice session. <laughs> no, I'm not advocating another lengthy practice session. But the gap between the ultrasofts and the supersofts in pace wasn't massive. I mean, the gap ultra to uh, ultra, the gap hypersoft to ultrasoft was 0.91 second when fresh. It was smaller between the other two. So supersoft and ultrasoft, you can get smaller swings in terms of oh, well, the car balance works a bit better on one tire than the other versus another car. That can make a, a bigger difference. So that it's more important to to understand that. So I'm surprised teams aren't trying a little bit more. Another example is Baku, where Kimi Raikkonen tried to match everyone else and qualify on the, uh, I forget which tire allocation, but it was the middle compound of tire. But it's the first time he'd run it and he had a lock-up. And you kind of think, well, maybe if you'd had one other set and you had a bit more of a feel for it before... You might have known that. You might still have made the mistake. But, you know, if you go into the unknown, you should expect to be surprised a few times. Especially given F1 these days, you know, no stone is unturned, is it, in in seeking knowledge, understanding and performance. So it seems a bizarre thing to leave uh, as a question mark. And yet it is, as Murray Walker once said, the sport that is if backwards. Although it's actually one F backwards, but let's let's not contradict dear Murray. Exactly, yes. We would not want to do that. Well, it, it wasn't an extraordinary race, but... I'm I'm pleased to see Daniel Ricciardo winning this race. He's continued to raise his game. He's responded to the challenge of Verstappen. But the really interesting thing now is Daniel Ricciardo still out of contract. What's he going to do for next year? Can he get another opportunity with a with a Ferrari or a or a Mercedes? What are Red Bull going to do with the engines? The next race in Canada, upgrades for Renault and for Honda. That's going to be very very interesting. The next few weeks are going to be crucial in shaping the coming seasons of Formula One in terms of who's where and who's got what engine. But I think the really important thing is a couple of years ago when Daniel Ricciardo was denied victory here, he talked about, well, you know, I want to be a world champion and I'm aware that time, well, he's not old and still isn't old, time does gradually count down and he wants to be able to win a world championship. And I think what we saw today is him winning in in a type of adversity. It wasn't one of these opportunistic smash-and-grab type wins that we've seen him being very good at. It's the first time he's won a Grand Prix in his seven wins after starting from the top three on the grid, remarkably. So it's nice to see Let him... alone pole. Oh, exactly, yeah. So it's, it's nice to see him do something different and show that actually, yeah, this is a guy who I personally think over a season will be able to hack a world championship fight. And I think we just want to see him in that situation. Agreed. Yep. Good. Well, that's a nice consensual... Uh, way to end the podcast i so. concur dr straw exactly well indubitably it's very hard to disagree with me i know there's plenty of listeners who'll be uh scrambling to social media to tell me that's not yeah the case. yeah you're wrong ed what is with ed straw exactly or exactly. oh, i will add something to the ricardo thing very very quickly uh if if red bull and renault can give him a package or red bull and honda can give him a package to fight for the title what an absolutely fantastic ambassador for formula one he would be he's so charismatic so energetic so personable he's a really enjoyable driver to speak to he's he's so enthusiastic about about the sport he's so enthusiastic in general that just having him at the top regularly would just be absolutely brilliant for for f1 and there's a ruthless edge under there as well which i'd love to see in a championship fight he's uh i think he's got what he what it takes to to thrive in that environment but we won't know until until we see him there so let's see what happens over the next couple of weeks well, thanks to Stuart Codling and to Scott Mitchell for joining me, Ed Straw, to look back at the Monaco Grand Prix. Please check out autosport.com for all the latest news on Formula 1 and the rest of the world of motorsport. We've got plenty of post-race stories and some of the, and some of the bigger picture stories about Formula 1's longer-term future. 
We've also got our plus subscriber section where we've got our infamous driver ratings where you can disagree with me for giving Daniel Ricardo 10 out of 10 rather than 11 out of 10 as, uh, as Scott Mitchell and his strange mathematics wants us to hear in slightly spinal tap fashion. Scott Mitchell's strange mathematics is a good name for a band. That's a very good name for a band. Yeah. Not as good as subs to fill but that, uh, that's a rabbit hole we mustn't go into at the end of a podcast. Yes, French air traffic control will, uh, will definitely uh, not wait for us on, on that particular one. Also check out Autosport Magazine out every Thursday. We'll have in-depth coverage of the race and features. F1 Racing Magazine out monthly. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.